Open the precious Word of God with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I have been preaching to you expositionally from the epistle to the Romans. We have reached Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, and we are going to stop there for a while and enjoy the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. As I said last Lord's Day, it's an unspeakable gift. Right. And so it's hard to speak about something unspeakable. But let's make the best effort we can, and I hope that you will hear with joy. In the last few minutes, because being filled with all the fullness of God is knowing the love of Christ, the Spirit of God wants me to tell you something about Jesus Christ's love for you. Jesus Christ was the only begotten of His Father. His Father loved Him immensely. His Father would thunder from heaven on several occasions, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He had, and He has, the whole universe as His sole inheritance. I would like to ask you to think about a son that is the pride and joy of his father. And what would go through that son if he had seen the last will and testament of his father all his life and had seen that he was the sole beneficiary of that will. That his father went out and adopted a scumbag out of a scumbag orphanage and made him an equal heir with that son. Since you have a heart like I have a heart, how offended would we be? How angry would we be? Would there be vengeance in our hearts against that adopted son competing with us and being given an equal share in our father's estate? Would there be vengeance in our hearts against our Father for making such a choice? I praise God through Jesus Christ, my Lord and my older brother, that He laid down His life and willingly and cheerfully shared His inheritance with a scumbag named Jonathan Crosby. You can't imagine what I just described to you. It's beyond us. The Holy Spirit must convey it to us. It's not in my notes. The Lord just wanted me to think about Jesus Christ in the matter. Because it's not just the love of our Father that adopted us. It's the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that was willing to share His eternal kingdom with us. And to lay down His life as the beloved Son to adopt rebel enemies to be brethren. And He's not ashamed To call us brethren. This is where we're going today. As many things as the Holy Spirit will help us think of. About his adoption. And I thank you Lord for that thought that you just gave me. 
Because I know what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 when he's talking about the whole family of God. He said that the Holy Spirit in our inner man might strengthen us with all might that we might know the full dimensions of the love of Christ. Right. The love of Christ, the Son, for us. Amen. What son would do that cheerfully? He did it cheerfully. He could have stopped it. He could have called 12 legions of angels. But he put his hand up and stopped Peter from using his sword, and he healed the ear of Melchus. Right. Because he was going to go to the cross to share his eternal inheritance with us, the love of Christ. He died that we might live. Praise the Lord God of heaven. Amen. What a drama that we have in Holy Scripture in the gospel. I read to you three verses I know that I read last Lord's Day. Reading them twice in two weeks, will that hurt your recollection of them or help it? Did you do your multiplication tables once, twice, or a thousand times to try to help your pitiful little mind remember two times two equals four? So we need this repeated to us in simplicity. And I hope the Lord will guide me. I have way too much, but we'll trust the Lord. First John chapter 3. Behold, stop, look, consider, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Five quick lessons from these three verses. First, the declaration by God himself that this is an incredibly unusual kind of love. Behold what manner. Behold what kind of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. He did not offer it to us. He bestowed it upon us. And it is very unusual from all the descriptions of love in the world. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And it is tied up not in justification, not in redemption, but in adoption. That we should be called the sons of God. So the first lesson we want to see very quickly is that this is an unusual kind of love. That God would adopt us as His children. Second lesson from the first verse. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Though we are the sons of God and the whole world ought to be at our feet, As I said to you last Lord's Day, and I know I'm repeating myself, I want our children and those who weren't here, and yea, I want me to remember these things. Right. We should be living tax-free. Congress should be in immediate session to give tax-free living and a subsidy for life. 
to the sons of God. So we have a description here to comfort you as to why the world doesn't treat you better. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. If we have been adopted into a new family, the head of which, the father of which, was unknown and rejected by the world, it should come as no surprise to you that his children are unknown and rejected as well. This is the truth of 1 John 3, 1. This is the gospel message of 1 John 3, 1. Two lessons. Number one, what an incredible kind of love is displayed by God adopting us. Number two, the world should be treating us very specially, but they don't because they don't know Him or us. Verse two, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Third lesson, we don't know what we're going to look like because we haven't seen a glorified body yet. But we're going to be glorified. Our glorification is as sure as any other part of your salvation. We will have glorified spiritual bodies that will inhabit eternity forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we haven't seen one yet. So the apostle could write, Beloved, God loves us. That's why we're beloved. We're His children. And we are the sons of God already. We have been predestinated to it. We have been bought at the cross of Calvary in the legal payment for our adoption. And we've been born again as the sons of God. So three phases of our adoption are complete. And yea, we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ showing a fourth phase in our lives. But we haven't seen that fifth phase yet. The, fa- the phases of salvation are right there in those words when it says, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. There's present tense, existence of phases completed, and there's a future tense phase of adoption that we do not have yet. Because, but we know that. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We have not seen our glorified brother yet that shows us what the family of God's going to look like. But we are going to see our glorified brother very soon, and we'll know what we're going to look like. And so last Lord's Day, with verses I'm not going to turn to again today, we found that we have a rod of iron in our hands like he did. Revelation 2, 25 through 27. We sit in a throne with him. Revelation chapter 3. We inherit all things. Revelation chapter 21. He is on a white horse. We are all on white horses behind him in the days to come. Revelation chapter 19. We haven't seen him yet. It does not yet appear what we're going to look like. But the Bible gives us a few glimpses. And we know that when he finally appears, we're going to be like him because it tells us we shall be changed. And made into the glorious sons of God. That's the fourth lesson of the second, found in the second verse. And the fifth lesson of this wonderful passage is verse three. And every man that hath this hope in him, the certain expectation that God has adopted him and God is going to receive him into glory, every man that is waiting for that event, who believes that truth that's conveyed in the gospel, he purifies his life. He gets everything that is dirty out of it. He gets everything unclean out of his life, out of his thoughts, out of his speech, out of his actions. 
He purifies his life because he knows his Father in heaven is pure and he needs to be pure like him. And I preached to you just a few months ago about passing the time of your sojourning here in fear because that passage referred to your Father being holy and if he's holy, you ought to be holy like he is. So if we really understood adoption and we really laid hold of it today, then we'll want to purify our lives. Thank you, Lord, for 1 John chapter 3. My brethren, there's only two kinds of people on earth at any given time. The sons of God and the sons of the devil. The vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor. The vessels of mercy and the vessels of wrath. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're a child of God by that evidence. And thus, by that evidence, you are also a child and vessel of mercy and not a child of wrath. As Ephesians 2, 3 describes our past, nor a vessel of wrath. You're a child and a vessel of mercy and of honor, not of dishonor. And you're not a child of the devil any longer because you've been taken out of that orphanage run by him where you were so happy, spitting and screaming and kicking. You were taken by your father against your will, according to his will. Right. He made you willing. Amen. By the power of His Spirit to change your nature. Something earthly fathers cannot do when they adopt. Oh, when an earthly father adopts and he knows what a scumbag family that he adopted this child out of. He knows what a corrupt, profane gene pool that he bought into by paying for an adoption. He knows that that ugly nature may spring up and he may steal from him. He may murder him in his sleep. And a father can't change a nature of an adopted child. But God adopted us and changed our natures. Part of the glorious plan of salvation. He regenerated us and gave us a new man. And he asks us every morning, when you get up, son, when you get up, would you put on the new man? I gave you the power to live like a new man. Will you live like a new man every day and not that old man that you were in the orphanage? And so he asks us. He tells us to put off the old man and his works and to put on the new man. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and in between, it's a record of the sons of God. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, it's the sons of God marrying the daughters of men that brought the flood upon the earth. The sons of God were the descendants of Seth who called upon the name of the Lord. And they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they so they intermarried with them and intermingled their seed. The seed of the righteous with the seed of the wicked. And God destroyed the earth with a flood. We go all the way to the book of Revelation 21 and verse 7, right toward the end of the entire Bible. And it says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. So there's sonship from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. This book is a book to the sons of God, about the sons of God, and what God has done in adopting us, why we needed to be adopted, and what we can do to please our Heavenly Father, who did so graciously and kindly adopt us. The whole Bible is ours. Thank you, Lord. To adopt is to take as one's own child, someone who isn't your child, conferring all rights and privileges of childship, to that child. It's not entirely unusual for men to think about and actually 
execute an adoption of a deprived child to show affection and privileges to that deprived child. And it's not unusual for children that are available for adoption to be deprived children by their poor birth and circumstances. That's why they're in an orphanage. So it's not altogether unusual. In the Bible, we can see Pharaoh's Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses in a basket of reeds, in the reeds, and adopting him. We can see Mordecai adopting Esther and raising her as his own daughter. Adoption is a process that a lot of the beauty of understanding what the Lord has done for us comes from understanding the term and what's involved in adoption and seeing how God's adoption of us excels it in every measure. Any adoption has to begin with a father who considers his situation, weighs his desires and intentions and options, and plans to adopt. Follow with me. The, The Lord in His infinite wisdom chose about 17 descriptive terms to describe facets of salvation so that we would understand our salvation in different ways. Some of them are legal terms, like justification. Some are economic terms, like to redeem or to pay a ransom. Some are relational terms, like propitiation or reconciliation. And one's a family term, a filial term. Father, children, filial, called adoption. And we want to consider it. When a father considers his situation weighs his options and plans to adopt. Few men actually do such a thing. And the men that do need to determine a purpose for it within themselves as to why they're doing it. You know, they evaluate what kind of a child they want to seek to adopt. Will it be of their own nation or will it be of another nation? How many? Am I going to adopt one or two? Do I want them to have brothers? Or do I want an only child? They consider the cost of acquiring the children. What's it going to take to pay for all the legal process so that there are no legal claims against them and they are totally mine and I can give them a free inheritance? No other parents can ever come and claim them again. No orphanage can claim them. No government can interfere. They have to go through that process. A man does. He needs to consider what changes will need to be made to accommodate his children that he hasn't yet had before. He considers what he's going to do if or when they resort to the nature or habits of their real parents. All this should go into the planning process of a man adopting a child. He hopes that by affection and privileges, they're going to be loyal to him and serve him and his estate and his kingdom, if he's a king the planning stage of adoption. There's a legal stage of adoption because there's a legal process you have to go through, and it's long and tedious in our country. He hires lawyers to complete an official transfer, making the adoption legal and binding on all parties. We need a lawyer, is what you should be thinking. You have a lawyer, is what I am thinking. He has to satisfy whatever... Legal obligations his country of residence requires for adopting children. He has to satisfy any financial claims against the children by previous parents, by the government, 
by the orphanage. He must protect his children and him from lawsuits by the real parents trying to reclaim them. Who shall lay anything to the church? Just think through it with me. It's glorious. This ain't no king and it ain't no Bill Gates. I don't want to live in Bill Gates' 55,000 square foot mansion in Washington. Don't deprive me of something good. Right. Too small and he's too ignorant. Amen. I want a wise father. Right. I won't say any more about Bill Gates in this sermon. The legal process requires satisfying any legal obligations in order to give the children new names, new addresses, complete new slate for their lives. That's the legal process. A father has to, first of all, make the decision he's going to do it. Then he's got to go follow the, the legal process so that it's legitimate. It's binding on all parties. When the legal transfer is complete, the adopted child is given a new name, new status, new parents, new home. He's taken possession of. He's pulled out of the orphanage. You will never have to keep the rules of that orphanage again. You will never be given peanut butter and jelly like that again. You'll never be drinking powdered milk again. We're going to drink whole milk. There's an important day when the father actually and physically takes possession of his child. He's planned it. He's paid for him. And then he comes to the orphanage and he takes possession of him. He picks up that little screaming, kicking, slobbering baby, if he's a baby, an infant, adoption. Or if he's older, he's spitting against the glass of his little cage where he's kept, and he takes him. He takes him out of that orphanage. From the orphanage or hospital where he was born, the child is taken home to a new environment. He's given a new name. He's taken away from the rules of the orphanage, and a whole new world is opened up to him. He can live with a whole new set of privileges and power. He has a whole new opportunity and ability to do things he never was able to do before because his father has taken possession of the adopted child. Now that's three stages of human adoption. As the child grows, he learns more and more about his adoptive father. How much love there was involved in it. What privileges have occurred because of it. And what duties he owes his father. He discovers the disappointing truth that his real parents could not or did not want to care for him. Have we all learned that about our first set of parents? They were told what they were going to do to us. Praise God. I wish I could make this real to you. He learns all about the above that I've just covered to you. He learns about his father's planning. He learns about the cost of the adoption, the time it took. And he learns about his blessed future because he's shown a piece of paper called his last will and testament. He's given a new name. And he he learns more about it now. He learns more and more about his father's preferences. And he modifies his conduct to please him. This is the child at home. The adoption was planned. The adoption was paid for. The child was possessed. Now the child is adapting to his father's new home and wanting to please this father that has adopted him out of that orphanage and loved him by choice when he didn't have to, when his real parents wouldn't love him when they should have. 
And a relationship of affection, fellowship, and friendship develops between his father and himself. When his adopting father dies, he inherits his estate and a fullness of his name and realizes the full extent of his adoption. There may have been some doubts leading up to this point, but there are doubts no more. He has that name and he has that estate legally, completely, finally, forever. Praise God. Now, my brethren, every single thing I just said about a natural adoption, the God of heaven has done for us and better. Every single one he's done for us and better. For instance, our adopting father cannot die. So, so we have him and his estate forever. And if sons, if children, Romans 8, 17, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. God is going to give us everything God owns as his sons, as an inheritance, equally with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything I described to you about a natural adoption applies to our spiritual adoption, except our spiritual adoption is better. It's the, it's the weakness of the human mind where God has to stoop to things of this earth to try to communicate to us what he's actually done. But he's excelled every one of those. Whatever phase you want to think of, and yes, those are the five phases of salvation, and we're going to seek to melt them. Think of whatever phase you want to think about, and God in the Bible describes his activity in that phase to adopt you. I hope you read Deuteronomy 7 last night, if you chose to read it. That God chose Israel to be His peculiar people, not because they were great in number, but because they were the smallest and least. And He chose to love them because He chose to love them. He didn't set His love on them because they were lovable. He didn't set His love on them because they were loving. He set His love on them that He might love them. My father and your father will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. When he came into the orphanage of this world a long time ago on purpose to save me, and he looked into that orphanage of fallen, sinful, rebellious, profane mankind, there was nothing in me to attract any sympathy on his part. But he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. He had enough compassion for his own honor and glory, I will remind you, to lay down the life of his own son so that we could receive the adoption of sons. I hope you read Ezekiel 16, where the little baby was uncut and bleeding to death in a field, not swaddled nor salted. The first 15 verses of Ezekiel 16 are wonderful. The Lord came by as a father, That little child is a picture of Israel and said, live. And then blessed her, clothed her, prospered her, had her hair done, had a breast job done, did everything necessary to make her a beautiful woman. It's all there. Don't think I'm messing anything up by what I just described. He was going to have a perfect daughter. 
I didn't read the rest of the chapter because it's horrible. It's called spiritual adultery. I hope you read Malachi chapter 1, where Israel might ask, how do we know that God loves us? And God said, there was a woman that had twins. And I adopted one twin and rejected the other twin. I loved one twin and I hated the other. I love some descendants of that one twin and I hate the descendants of the other twin. Malachi 1. The necessity, brethren, we were born children, children of Adam, which made us children of the devil, according to the Bible. God wisely allowed sin to enter the world. This is the eternal phase of condemnation. God chose to let sin come into this world. Did God keep Abimelech from touching Sarah? Did God keep Pharaoh from touching Sarah? Could God have kept Adam and Eve from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, he could have, but he chose not to. Sin in the world was his choice. He didn't make any man sin. Our first parents sinned most willingly. But that was the eternal phase of our first birth. God chose that there would be a race that would be born on this planet, and they would be sinners because of our wicked choice. And he imputed Adam's sin to us, as we have learned in Romans chapter 5, so that we are guilty of eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When we are born, we have a sinful nature. Our sinful nature hates God and loves sin. We always default to wickedness. We don't default to righteousness. Whenever we do righteousness that appears to be righteousness, it's done for a selfish, unholy motive. So that we never do anything right from the heart outward. Because we have that terrible nature that we receive from our first parents. And as soon as we're old enough, like birth, we start lying. We start screaming. We start hating. We start demanding because we are selfish, little, rebellious brats. This is... These are the phases of development of each of us. And there's a phase yet to come of being children of the devil in which God will pronounce us as children of the devil and we will spend eternity with the devil in a place prepared for him and his angels unless we're adopted by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Psalm 5. Psalm 5 and see if we don't have a problem. It's the necessity of adoption. Psalm 5. Oh, if a man doesn't understand the sinfulness of himself and the sinfulness of his race, how can he understand his salvation? It is total depravity that must be taught. And so we start with it as the first of our seven proofs of unconditional salvation. In Psalm 5 and verse 5, which ought to be preached a whole lot more than it is, the Bible tells us the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. By our first birth, we're foolish. By our first birth, we're workers of iniquity. By our practice every day of our lives, we're workers of iniquity in our flesh. There's no good thing in our flesh. We fill that verse. How in the world can we ever be part of the family of God if we're in that verse? How about 7-11? God judgeth the righteous. That means he chastens them. 
The only judgment the righteous experience is chastening judgment, which is for their profit and good, lest they be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11, 30 teaches us that. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If God is angry with the wicked every day, and by our first birth we're wicked, how will we ever be in a happy family in heaven with God as our Father? How about chapter 11 and verse 5? Psalm 11 and verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous. See, there's another word for the Lord judgeth the righteous from 711. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. The soul of God, the soul of our Father by creation, hates us for our natures and our sinfulness. And our wickedness. He's angry with us every day. We're abominable to him. And his soul hates us. We need help. We need some serious help. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. How in the world would a father want such children? And that is what you are. You are foolish and you are a worker of iniquity. God hates you. His soul hateth you, and he's angry with you every day by nature. And he still hates your sinful nature. And he's going to get rid of it through death. And he's going to give you a glorified new body without that old nature. Ephesians chapter 2, verses we know so well, but we want to look at each verse and think about adoption. And you hath he quickened, that is to be born again, that is to be made alive Again, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We were once just like the children of disobedience. The children of disobedience, who are they? They're the children of this world. They're the children of the devil. All they do is disobey, and all they're going to get is God's judgment for disobeying. Verse 3, among whom we also all, or among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Twice we have reference to us being children. We were children of disobedience because that's all we did. We were just like the children of wrath because that's what's coming. We disobey, God's wrath will be poured out upon us in a day that's coming. We're children of disobedience, we're children of wrath because we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil himself. We were the children of the devil and we were gladly so. We need help. Look at chapter 5 and verse 6. Same book, Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. There are only two kinds of people on earth. Children of the devil, or called children of disobedience, or called children of wrath, and the children of God, or called the righteous. These two categories hate each other. 
God hates the one and loves the other. One's adopted, one's rejected. One's elect, one's reprobate. The great division in the human race. Praise God. There was a division in the angelic race. And they're called the elect angels and the holy angels. We're the predestinated children of God. The righteous. The sons of God. He made a great division in the angelic race and he's made a great division in the human race. Look at Psalm 14. I hope you've noticed the word children. 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 Over and over again. These are passages you know. Some might be a little new to you at some point in this preaching. But what I want you to do with the old verses is to think about them from the standpoint of adoption. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men. The Lord went into the orphanage of humanity to see if there were any that did understand their horrible plight and wanted to be adopted. (coughs) To see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? What is wrong with our race? What is wrong with each of us by nature? Why would we follow the course of this world? All it is is pain and suffering, and then you get to die. As they themselves describe it, life is a bitch, and then you die. What's wrong? The Lord looked down in the orphanage, and there were none that wanted to be His children. There were none that understood their horrible predicament and that sought after Him. None ran to Him and begged for mercy. Not even our first parents in the Garden of Eden. With all the intelligence that Adam had, where was his knowledge of his horrible predicament? Instead of blaming Eve, he ran to the feet of Almighty God and begged for mercy. This is what we are by our first birth, right here. This is when God looked. This is when he had devised in his mind that he was going to adopt. And he looked into the human race. Are there any that want to be my children? There were none. We've learned the same thing in Romans chapter 3, which I'll not read to you, but you know that it's there. There was none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. What does the righteous God do in such a predicament? What do we do? What's going to happen to us? If he doesn't do something in our foolishness, we reject him. We don't seek after him. And we're going to destroy ourselves as a race. We're going to destroy ourselves as individual persons before God by our rejection of our Creator. The Holy Spirit uses 17 words to describe salvation in the New Testament. Adoption is the finest. Read 1 John 3, 1 through 3 again and see if the Holy Spirit isn't telling you it's the finest. Just think a little tiny bit. Would you rather be justified and not adopted or adopted 
can't be adopted and not justified, but adopted and justified. Do you just want to be cleared of your guilt and condemnation? You know, the world, the Christian world talks about, I mean, these are the conservative ones. Now, most don't even talk about salvation anymore. They just talk about getting rid of your debt burden and being able to live happily even though you've been divorced several times and, you know, you're divorcing the husband that you're sitting with while you're sitting there under the preaching. Just on and on, the stuff they preach is just ridiculous. They hardly even talk about salvation anymore. You can turn Joel Osteen on tonight. He isn't going to preach about salvation tonight. I promise you he's not going to even start to preach about it. Oh, of course he has his 30-second little invitation there at the end, all canned, that he repeats every single week. But when we come into the Bible, we find 17 terms describing salvation. But adoption is the finest of them. God sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. But propitiation doesn't make God our Heavenly Father. All it means is that the judge is at peace with us. He's not going to put us in the slammer. That's all propitiation gets if that's all you read about. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But when we read the whole Bible, we understand why the propitiation was made. So that we could be adopted. He made peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ in order to adopt us. So we, at all turns in the Bible, it's leading toward us being the sons of God. Taking us all the way from condemned criminals in an orphanage, if you will, all the way to the sons of God inheriting eternal heaven. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Redemption is an economic term that describes the purchase price from God's justice. God's justice has a claim on us. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God's justice demands the death of every human that sins and every human sins. But redemption doesn't make us His sons. All it does is buy us back from His justice. It removes all legal claims against us in the orphanage so that we can be adopted. Pardon for crimes committed is a great deliverance. A presidential pardon, a divine pardon from heaven through the death of Jesus Christ that pardons us from our sins is a wonderful blessing. But it doesn't make us the children of God. It only makes it possible for God to adopt us as His children. Justification clears of guilt and condemnation and makes us righteous, but it doesn't make us God's sons. Sanctification is making something a holy object for the use of God. But sanctification doesn't make us God's children either. There's holy angels, but they're not His sons in the way we're going to be His sons Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Consider it this way. You might be justified to be adopted, but you don't have to be adopted to be justified. I want to tell you about the glory of adoption. Adoption rises considerably higher than any other aspect or facet of our great salvation. We must humbly say with John, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What manner of love. And it finds the pinnacle of the description of salvation. The highest point is in our adoption as God's children. 
if we think through how a man must adopt, planning, purchasing, possessing, telling and informing, and then granting an inheritance, if we look at that process, God excels it in every measure, at every point, than what a man ever does. Few men ever do it, and God does it contrary to all rational thinking of a natural man. He does it out of grace and mercy to reveal his perfections to the universe by adopting sinful rebels as his own children. We see the illustration of it in the Bible when God adopted Israel. Rebellious people, weren't they? But they were his children. The Philistines rejected them, ignored them, punished them, annihilated them. Israel adopted, loved them, protected them, blessed them, chastened them like children to try to make them better. And the two twins, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. This huge division in the, huge, in the human family, God loves the righteous over here to you, and God hates the wicked. The necessity, the foolish shall not stand in God's sight. How will we ever be there? We need to be adopted in some way and pulled out of the orphanage, and our nature's changed so that we can stand before God and be part of the family of God. He looked to see if there were any that wanted to be his children, and none understood. None sought after him. None did righteous. We all rebelled against him by nature, and yet he adopted us way. If you went into an orphanage and you had an opportunity to visit this orphanage several times before the paperwork was final, and you had picked what you thought was the best-looking thing of the litter, and every time you came it spat against the glass and cursed you, would you get a little discouraged when you looked into that orphanage and didn't find any cooperation at all? You didn't find any desire at all. You didn't get any notes in the mail between your visits begging you to adopt. Isn't that what an intelligent child would do? A knowledgeable child? Why do the workers of iniquity have no knowledge? There is none that understandeth. We should have been repenting. We talk about Adam repenting in Eden. We should repent in our flesh, but we don't. So God changes us. And it's the glory of adoption. It's the finest of our salvation. And we will take it up further when we come back from our break. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.